Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week I'm chatting with Ben Plohel, who is a buyer's agent and chartered accountant and director of BFP Property Buyers. We have a chat to him about his background in corporate finance and his journey to becoming a buyer's agent. We talk about his bread and butter style properties and how he builds a foundation of those before moving into advanced strategies. Some great tips for property investors and also some questions that we can't avoid asking about the crystal ball and what's going to happen to property prices both during and after the coronavirus pandemic. It's a great interview which I'm sure you will enjoy. Here's Ben. Ben Plohel, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Yeah, thanks Mike. Thanks for for having me. I've been looking forward to getting you on for a time. I apologize. It's taken me a little bit of time. We're obviously in some crazy times now. Um, Just to start though, the pronunciation, how did I do? You did well. Excellent. Now you, you enough you, emphasis on the H. Yes, it's spot on. Yeah, it's a tough one, um, but uh, no, you nailed it. Wow, excellent. I'll put that on the resume now, Ben. For for anyone that um, maybe hasn't come across you before, can you let us know what you do and what you specialise in? So I'm a, uh, a buyer's agent and a property strategist. So predominantly working with with investors, uh, but also helping home buyers here in uh, in Sydney. Beautiful. And to give us a bit of bit of dirt on young Ben, what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? Yeah, so I was a bit of a sports nut. Um, back in the day, I loved my Cronulla Sharks um, and um, Manchester United uh, from the from the English Premier League. So um, from memory, yeah, plenty of those posters up on the wall. But um, um, still follow the, the 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 EPL, but not so much the the NRL, but, um, but yeah, that's what, that's what I was sort of into as a kid. There you go. Now, what about property? How did you get started and what was your first investment? Um, so starting, yeah, it's, a, it's a tough one. So I, I bought my first investment property when I was 18. Um, look, did I know what I was doing at 18? Absolutely not. Um, I had a bit of, you know, a bit of cash saved up um, through, through part-time jobs and, and I wanted to, to put that money somewhere and, no, I, I think property was, was one of the things that I could understand the, the best, and um, and then yeah, went 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 through the process and bought a, a two bedroom unit in the inner west of um, of Sydney. See, most people at eighteen, you know, footy fans, mm. they're probably buying Toyota Supras. Um, <laughs> there's something unusual about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, I, I don't know. Look, I was always fascinated with. With money um, and you know how to make it, how to lose it, but it's it's sort of I grew up with that sort of um, uh, passion. Um, it's kind of something that I I just you know come up with myself. I, my, my parents weren't really um, or still aren't really um, you know so you know, money savvy or whatnot. Didn't weren't investors or anything, but um, it's something that I kind of just developed on my own which is yeah again yeah i agree it's pr- probably a little bit odd but uh but uh but it's it's um it's done well for me in the long run oh absolutely i, I mean as I'm, I'm sure the original toyota super is a, a soaring yeah. <laughs> in value but i'm assuming that uh that the the real estate investment's going to be doing even better what what happened with that property yeah so i i held it for oh i probably held on it for about five years and sold it and then uh, built a, a property um, in, the, in the western suburbs of Sydney, um, which again, then I, I, I kept for quite a while. And I think at that stage, I didn't really you know, fully appreciate the 
the the opportunity to extract equity and, and and buy another property i was more you know buy hold sell and repeat the process for for the early stages of my investing career but um later on down the track i then understood the the process of extracting equity and and using that as a deposit to to leapfrog into 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 subsequent investments but um but yeah that that first property which unfortunately because i it's worth a lot more than what i paid for um yeah it's no longer in the portfolio Mm. Yeah, but I mean, five years as an 18-year-old, we talk about um, millennials having no patience. Obviously, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you and I don't qualify for, <laughs> that, for that definition, but that's a that's a reasonable run. Give us um give us a bit of background into you, Ben. Where does where does the the difficult to pronounce name come from? I, I know I threw a off um off off the recording. I threw a Polish hail Mary, and that that one didn't quite land. Um, where does that come from, and where was home for you as a kid? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so the, the surname is Plotel. It's um it, it it's Slovenian. Um, so my family or my father's from the northern part of of Slovenia, and you know back in the 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 forties and fifties, it was actually under. Uh, German Austrian rule, so uh, the, the Plotel name is it's kind of known as a as a, a very old German name. Um, but yeah, we my, my father was born in Slovenia, and um, and came out to Australia in the uh, in the sixties. So um, been here for a long time. Um, so that's the, the the sort of where the names originated. Uh, I grew up in 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 the southwest of Sydney. Um, um, I um, in the the suburbs of in and around Fairfield and and and, and further on down in Liverpool. Um, so that's where majority of my life I grew up. Um, I went to school in my primary school was in in, in Cabramatta, which was um, which was you know quite interesting interesting place to, to, to grow up um, um, for, for a whole bunch of different reasons. But yeah, you know, we had a great upbringing, my brother and I. Um, um, you know, hardworking parents, um, and yeah, you know, they they. They, they gave us the best education that, that they possibly could um, and then helped us, you know, jump into, into, into university degrees as well, which was, um, which was fantastic. But, uh, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a South West Sydney boy. There you go. And that was probably um, a bull, that's Bulldogs territory rather than Cronulla, am I right? Yeah, yeah, well, it's probably a Bulldogs, Parramatta um, kind of um, you know, territory. And um, I think the, the Cronulla Sharks sort of thing, I, I was... Always liked Andrew Eddinghausen as a, as a kid, as a, um, watching him play. Me too. Um, yeah, it was. Um, um, uh, that's kind of where where the passion for for the Sharkies came in. But uh, but you're right. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's um, I, I grew up quite, quite far away from 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 the Shire. That's for sure. Now you mentioned uh, obviously going to uni, and I was going to pounce on that as a segue because you are a buyer's agent and a chartered accountant. It's not. Um, I mean, it's not like saying you're a ballet dancer and a, and a MMA fighter, but the, those things you don't tend to hear uh, very close together. So you, you studied accounting at uni. Can you give us a bit of a rundown about your professional journey? Because you had um, you know, quite a career in the, in the corporate world and, and now you're a buyer's agent. Yeah, it's it's um, so I spent fifteen years in in accounting and finance. So I started um, you know, when I was eighteen as well, doing a, a chartered accounting cadetship in, in a in a firm in Parramatta, um, and then doing my my business and commerce degree for you know, part time. It was five or six years going going to to uni of an evening um, whilst I worked full time. So I guess my background in in, in the corporate early on in my corporate career was. Uh, was in tax advisory, you know, M&A, doing you know, uh, corporate finance type deals, um, business advisory 
that, that those kind of um, you know, service lines. Um, I then mm. went on to become a, a qualified chartered accountant and then moved into into the corporate world. So um, I, I worked in a whole bunch of different businesses here in Sydney um, and also in um, in the UK um, where I was sort of seconded over to um, to, to opportunity in 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 London for um, for Rolls Royce Power Systems, which was which was pretty cool. So I, I've spent yeah, good fifteen years in in um, in, in accounting and finance roles, um, both here in Sydney and the UK. Now it must be a very different beast to the job that is now your day to day, being the boss, or essentially your own boss in a in a small business. How did that sort of compare? Um, to the corporate world, did you enjoy that? And how's the transition been for you? Yeah, it's it's completely different. Um, you know, going from from managing quite large large teams and, and complex complex businesses. So, to, to the latter end of my career, I, I worked up to um to the position of a CFO for a large pharmaceutical company. Um, and look, it was it was pretty full on. Um, uh, private equity owned. Um, you know, some you know, pretty stringent reporting lines. Um, you know, managing you know, large teams, very complex business. Um, I guess at that point, I I I, I was you know um, building up a you know, pretty large portfolio of properties, and that that's where my I think my, my passion lied, and I really wanted to, to, to sort of leapfrog into that as a as a as a business opportunity. And I think the the, the CFO corporate lifestyle, it it sort of I think it just drew its course. It 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 um it wasn't something that I aspired to do long term. Um, obviously, yeah, the, the pressures associated with that kind of a position, um, it just didn't really suit me as a, you know, starting a young family. It wasn't really something that I I wanted to do long term. I wanted to, to, to build a business that was did a, that allowed me to, I guess, give back to people, um, you know, provide some genuine quality advice, helping them achieve, you know, a little bit of what I've been able to do, um, you know, over 15 years and and just show people what's what's possible. You know, I wasn't born with a with a with a sort of you know a, a silver spoon in my mouth. I, I've you know I've worked hard and and um, and been able to, to to make something of um, of something. And I, I'm about showing people that you know you can do it as well. Um, you know, not having a privileged upbringing, um, there's opportunities there if you want to take it and um, and learn about you know what 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 can be done in property. So. Yeah, look, massive, massive change going from you know managing a large business to you know being a um, uh, effectively a sole trader in a small buyers agency business was yes. was a massive, um, a massive uh, shift. But uh, I've loved it; and it's been great. But as you say, I'm sure it w- it has its own rewards helping the net profit margin of a big pharma company soar. Um, but it's not quite the same as helping people that are maybe looking at their first investment and wanting to retire to spend time with their family or look after relatives or something like that. There's a there's a little bit more humanity in it, I would say. Look, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Being in corporate, you know, you know, busting your backside to um to 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 create an outcome for you know for, for a private equity owner um is very different to to sitting down with well, you know, be a mum and dad investor that that's wanting to create some change in their life. It's it's I get a lot more satisfaction out of that than than say being in corporate. Um, um, so yeah, from that perspective, I you know, definitely haven't looked back. It's been a it's been a great journey. But look, as a small business owner, it's full of ups and downs. Um, but 
um, I guess it's it's one of those things that I think the buyer's agency concept, if you um, um, if people are familiar with it, it's definitely um, becoming a lot more relevant and a lot more popular. I think people are grasping to the um, to the benefits of, of using one. Look, it's not not for everyone. Not not every home buyer or investor will gravitate to to a buyer's agent, and that's fine. Um, but for the select sort of market that, that I, um, I guess, cater to, um, look, it's a, it's a godsend and it really helps people, um, you know, help them make decisions and, and, you know, and take action. And that's, that's something that I get a lot of satisfaction out of. What, what I think is interesting that people have shared about buyers agents in Australia, and we've certainly had a few on the, on the podcast, is I saw a, a stat, and I wish I had it in front of me, but it was, it was around the, the numbers of real estate agents advocating on the side of the vendors compared to the buyers agents out there. So there's, it was something like 100 buyers agents in Australia and about 28,000 real estate agents. So if you're wanting to purchase something, the first port of call would be to, you know, to make an inquiry on something that a real estate agent has listed for sale. But they are not on your team, despite them saying, you know, like, oh, we'll keep an eye out and when something comes up, we'll let you know. When, whenever there's not a financial arrangement between them and there is on the other side, then they rightfully need to advocate for their client that's paying them, right? And and that's where I think there's there's potential for buyers agents to be a lot more common in Australia than than they have been uh, ever. Yeah, no, no, spot on. Yeah, and I think it's it's an education, I guess, piece that that still needs to to take place in Australia. Um, you're right, people. When people are looking to, to buy a home, the first thing, the first point of call is, is you know, picking up the, the phone and speaking to the local real estate agent and seeing what's available or, you know, identifying a listing on, on one of the portals and, and creating a relationship mm. with a selling agent. But they don't, you know, they don't get that, you know, they're, they're, you know this agent is not on my side. They're, they're, um, they're obviously acting on behalf of someone else. So, um, look, it's, it's a big education piece, um, you know, become, making people aware of, um, you know, of how that's, that process works and, and what value someone like myself can, can bring to the table. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's big on education. That's, that's what needs to happen because if you look at the US market, um, uh, a, a very large uh, percentage of, of property transactions happen between a buying agent and, and a selling agent. It's, it's quite, um, it's quite a, a common um, thing over there. And also, you know, when I was in London, uh, you know, buying, buyers agents are, you know, they're on, on most corners. It's a, it's a it's 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 a very a widely accepted concept. But I think you know, in Australia, I think it's changing. Um, but but I think we've still got a long way to go. So again, it, it is a, there's a lot yeah. of opportunities for, for for people like me. I think. Can you talk us through your investment property journey in terms of sort of where you went after the building the the properties in in Western Sydney? What you were sort of buying. Um, just run us through the fundamentals um, of, of what you've purchased and how you've built your portfolio. Yeah, sure. So, um, so the, the portfolio is is predominantly based um, around um, you know what I call you know bread and butter properties. So they're very very simple, straightforward, uh, freestanding dwellings in in major capital cities across the country um, that, that that show good capital growth prospects. Sound cash flow and value add prospects. So, um, when I'm buying personally or, or for a client, you know, we need to hit those three peers or three pillars. Um, so, growth, cash flow, and, and value add potential. So, 
every property that we buy, it must have those three aspects. It's really important. Um, so my personal portfolio you know, adopts those same principles. So um, we've got investments here in Sydney, um, in Brisbane, and and also in Tasmania, which um, which has been really good for us. And and um, and we're looking at some other opportunities. Um, at the moment, um, more around the, the commercial side of things um, um, and, and unit block investments. Um, so for, for, for clients, when we're looking at, at buying property, it, it needs to, I guess, yeah, hit those hit those three peers and, and we go through the process of, you know, establishing a base portfolio of properties and then leapfrogging into some more advanced strategies, which... Um, which, um, which, which, which can be really powerful for, um, for building portfolios. With, with the base properties, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, you mentioned capital cities, um, obviously, rather than regionals. Do, do you make time for regionals or is it, is it mostly focusing close to the major employment centres? And what's your, what's your sort of rationale behind sticking close to the capital cities? Yeah, look, it's, it's probably yeah, using the concept capital cities, it might be a little misleading, but um, it's more major, major cities, right? So... For instance, yep. you know, we, we, in New South Wales, we say, okay, Sydney's the capital city, but you know, I wouldn't hesitate in, in looking at, say, Wollongong or Newcastle. They're still large, large hubs, and and they're they're cities that we that we do invest in as well across the country. So, yeah, capital cities might be a little, um, probably not the right word to use, but it, they need to be large cities, right? So, large cities that that have you know employment hubs, um, you know, and, and the population to support. You know, future capital growth is what we're what we're looking for. My portfolio, as it stands at the moment, is actually based in in capital cities. But it's not to say that that, that I wouldn't look at um, at um, at, at, um, at more your regional, you know, your large regional cities. That that's definitely um, something that we do for clients, and um, and you tend to see some pretty interesting um, opportunities in those in those cities um, 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 as well. One thing that I think people sort of tire of is, is people coming on the, the podcast or in the media and say, I've bought this portfolio, um, but, you know, I got a bit of a head start because my parents gave me half a million bucks or, you know, I was managing director of a, of a massive company, so I was on the big bucks, so it was pretty easy. How, how important was your sort of work as a, for, for example, a CFO, I assume you're on a pretty good wicket. Did that sort of help you to accelerate your portfolio? I guess I'm getting to the question, do you think it's, it's necessary to, to, to have a, a big income when you're in the acquisition phase to end up with a sizable portfolio? Oh, look, not necessarily. So I guess in my situation, the, the back end of my corporate career, yeah, look, as a CFO, you, you're, you're earning decent, a decent wage. So it really allowed my wife and I to, I guess, um, build or rapidly grow the portfolio in the latter, latter stage of my corporate career. Um, but look, for, for people um, that, that I work with, look, it's not – you don't need to be on the big bucks. Um, um, you can – you still need to have a, you know, a decent you know, family income to, 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 uh, to get started. And I guess the, the properties or the markets that I, I specialise in, you, you still need to have a decent, a decent family income. I'm, I, I specialise in the markets – Anywhere from say four hundred to four hundred and fifty thousand upwards, um, so we're not looking at two hundred thousand dollar or two hundred fifty thousand um, dollar um, sort of the end of the market. But um, but look, you don't need a large large income, but it does help absolutely. Um, but you can still get away with um, with um, with 
um, with, with with investing um, on a on a sort of a, an ordinary or a middle income. You talked about the the bread and butter properties and having sort of the, I guess the the three the three tips of the trident, if you'll if you'll allow it, um, the cash flow, the the capital growth, and the value add. There's sort of a very cliched argument about you know, not being able to have cash flow and capital growth potential, you know, a, a reasonable prospects on on either side. Where where do you sort of land on that? And and can you talk us through some of the numbers, like what the typical yield would be, and what your expectations for growth are in these areas? Yeah, so you're right. Yeah, there is a bit of a cliche around not being able to achieve, you know, growth and cash flow, and I think that's it's a bit of a myth. Um, if you look at certain markets across the country, you, you, you can without a doubt achieve, um, um, you know, acquiring a property that that, that meet those two, um, you know, key pillars. Um, for instance, um, you're looking at say the Adelaide market or you know, what was a great market in Hobart. You know, people were achieving significant you know, and rapid uh, price growth in terms of capital growth, but also having a really sound, um, you know, gross rental yield. And um, if you look at markets like Melbourne or Sydney, um, look, without a doubt, yeah, most properties in those markets, your yield is 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 quite tight. Um, but obviously, we can see what what capital growth has been like over the years. Um, but look, in general, um, if we're looking at um, you know, what kind of yields we're, we're hitting in most markets, anywhere from 4.5% upwards. So it really depends on what we're trying to achieve for a particular client. Um, you know, we can hit yields of, you know, of, um, of 6% even higher if we, uh, depending on what strategy we're adopting. But, um, um, yeah, it's really dependent on, on what kind of property we can look at unit blocks that can hit a, an 8 or 9% gross rental yield. Um, that's definitely achievable in certain mm. markets. But um, it, it comes down to what, what, what kind of asset we're chasing and which market we're, we're sort of comfortable in, in, in buying and obviously um, what the budget's looking like as well. You raise a good point with Hobart. I mean, Hobart's not a backwater. It's not a tiny little regional town and the capital growth, at least at a point in time, was probably better than anywhere else in the country and yields were routinely 5% and, and upwards. Um so yeah, I guess you've you've proved the myth on that pretty well. You talked about the bread and butter properties, and then you know launching into some of the some of the the more I guess um, high, higher growth potential or higher yielding but higher risk. Can you talk us through some of those sort of more advanced strategies? And 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 at first preface that with. How many is there a magic number of the bread and butter properties that you think someone would should have before they're looking at unit blocks or developments or subdivisions or anything like that? Uh, look, there's no, I don't think there's any. There's not a hard and fast, you know, formula of, of how many you know properties you need in your base portfolio. Everyone is different. Um, everyone's got their own goals and objectives that they're trying to achieve. But you know, it could be anywhere from three all the way up to five or more. It really, it really depends on on, on on I guess the the value of those base portfolio properties and you know what the yields looking like, but um, it, I guess the answer is there's no real hard and fast I guess answer to that. But when we're when we've built a, a, you know a, a sufficiently large enough base portfolio, we can then look at advanced strategies and look those those type of strategies are you know, commercial properties, uh, looking at unit blocks, um, joint ventures. Um, um, 
jumping into property syndications, which which is quite into, you know, quite interesting. So you know, pulling money together and you know, buying larger assets, um, you know, small scale infill developments, which we help clients um, undertake as well. And and the last one, which I'm really passionate and interested about, is 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 looking at overseas markets. Um, it's something that I've I've spent you know quite a bit of time looking at. I've I'm yet to pull the trigger, but um, you know, it's just a matter of time before I do. But um, yeah, looking at opportunities in um, in other markets outside of of Australia, that's another I guess advanced strategy that um, that I personally will adopt and and can help clients look at as well. Now you mentioned you spend a little bit of time in London, and I, I certainly have been intoxicated by some of the some of the emails you get sent around. I mean, I've been intoxicated in general, but that's a, that's a different episode. Um, the emails that you get around saying here's a here's a property in Dakota for forty five thousand, and it's you know renting for two hundred a week, and you think, oh, it's a nice looking place. What what sort of areas? I mean, around the globe, are you looking at? And have you got any advice for for some of the traps because I imagine things like that can look very, very attractive on paper, but there's a little bit of due diligence you got to do to stop yourself getting your fingers burnt, right? Yeah, look, hundred percent. Yeah, so um, the the market that I'm quite interested in is is actually the UK market. Um, um, and look, I I personally wouldn't wouldn't go there and buy myself. I've got a relationship with a um, with a buyer's agent in in the UK, and um, you know, we we speak quite regularly and. Um, just more me getting my understanding and um, my head around that market, but um, but look, yeah, there's some some of the opportunities in in that particular market are you know, quite mind-boggling, and um, you know, you got HMO, which is um, you know the boarding house um, strategy that we have here. So HMOs are quite quite um, quite an interesting opportunity in in parts of um, parts of England, but just your general you know buy to let properties, which is you know, normal um, you know, home that you you lease out here. Um, you know, yields yields are quite interesting, right? You can get anywhere from up to 13, 14% gross rental yield. Um, but again, you know, you, those properties might be in areas that you, you you might not necessarily want to be investing in because of you know demographic and you know, job opportunities, etc. But um, yeah, look, it's 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 something interesting. I've also looked at the US market, but um, um, probably more so looking around the UK market. But uh, look, I think it's it takes a lot of education and it takes a lot of you know, research and number crunching to really be comfortable with 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 employing a strategy over there. But um, but I think you know, Australia is not the only um, you know place that has a good quality and stable property market. It's about you know opening your eyes to to opportunities outside, but but also at the same time getting the support that you need to um, to leverage off people that are on the ground and you know have that intimate knowledge. I think is important. Yeah, and speaking of intimate knowledge and number crunching, I mean that's your that's your trade, right? So it makes me sort of wonder, you know, what what other opportunities do you look at, and and why is it that you landed in in property? You know, accountants, I, I know many accountants that are very pro property, but they they can't necessarily recommend it too much. But also, you know, pro diversification. You're obviously looking at a few different deals. What what makes you land on property as a finance guy? Yeah, look. So I guess when we look at my my, my wife and I's you know, portfolio, we do you know dabble in in stuff outside of property, but they're more you know managed funds and index funds, which you know just sort of allow us to to, to achieve some sort of diversification. But majority of our I guess portfolio is in property, and I think it's all about 
there's probably three key points that that I'd um, that, that really get me excited about property. It's you know one, it's tried and tested. If you look at history, um, you know, the property market in Australia has sustainably grown over a long period of time. Um, so it's obviously something that if you look back on you know a historical track record. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's tried and tested. Um, volatility. It's it's obviously a, an asset class that that isn't volatile like the share market. And what we've seen over the last month or two um, on the share market here in Australia, property tends to take quite a long time uh, to to um, to um, I guess factor in you know, you know, global economic events like what we're experiencing now. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. Whereas, say, the share market can be, you know, it, it's it's based on sentiment, right? Um, once yes. one person sells, people just sort of follow the, the the pattern and you know can crash a market pretty quickly. So I think the the volatility aspect of property or being less volatile is is something that's quite quite um quite important, and I guess the reason why I've liked it for so long. And leverage, um, that's. You know, I'd probably say that's the the most important part of property. It's being able to yeah. to to leverage into an asset, um, and and grow a large portfolio with you know, little of your own money um, involved or sort of put down. So, I guess the the grand scheme or the 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 process of of what I go through with clients is if you can if you can muster up that first deposit, the aim is to then. You know, that first cash deposit into the first property, you can then use that to leapfrog into into a multiple properties using the power of leverage and you know, equity extraction, etc. So leverage, I think, is really important. And of course, the compound growth that comes with that as well. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting interesting time to compare the differences between the share market and property and and the thing that really sticks out is the volatility right if you want to sell shares you don't have to sign an agency agreement you don't have to evict the company <laughs> that's, mm. that's operating it um and you know if, if if property was liquid you'd probably find it doing exactly the the same thing but of course if you want to sell now yeah there's there's the idea well you might be crystallizing that loss and it's a it's a big asset you've you're probably going to take 90 days to transact it and you know who knows what's going to happen in 90 days that sort of leads me to the next question and everyone wants the crystal ball out when when they're talking to a, a property expert um I try not to talk too much about current events because there can be a bit of a lag with the podcast yeah. and often people tell me they go back to the to the back archive some years later. But for anyone that's, um, that needs a little bit of a let, – let's hope it's a, a history lesson. There was a, there was a virusy thing going around and we nipped it in the bud pretty pretty early and, and nothing got too serious. But we're talking sort of mid, mid-April 2020. We're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Obviously, there's restrictions on movements. Real estate at the moment is still able to be transacted, but you can't go and take you know, your mother-in-law and your brother and sister to go and inspect a property. What, what do you think the, the near-term outlook look is for property? So ignoring, it'll be a separate question for you, what happens when everything has really gone back to normal and the unemployment sort of comes back down. But right now at the moment where unemployment is rising and we're expecting that to be 10 or 11%, I'm guessing that properties will not transact as frequently as they, as they have in the past. What, what, are you, what are you seeing for the next few months 
Yeah, so I think for the next couple of months in the property market, given what we're going through now, it's it's going to be um, a little all over the shop, right? It's um, um, uh, yeah, buyers uh, yeah, buyers are still still in the market. Um, I'll probably preface that to, to more the Sydney market here where I'm you know, involved quite a lot. Um, there are still buyers around. Sellers are definitely dropped off. There's been a whole bunch of properties that have been pulled off the market. Um, but I think quality properties, um, you know, well-located, they're still, they're still selling, albeit a little slower. Um, so I think over the next couple of months, we're going to see a bit of volatility in terms of price growth, or in terms of price reductions. Look, at this early stage, you know, being you know, mid-April, I'm not seeing significant price reductions. There has been a few opportunities where vendors need to sell, need to sell quickly for a whole bunch of reasons. Then, yeah, you can you can you can achieve a um, a bit of a price reduction um, in those situations. But um, for for most of the properties that I'm seeing that are being transacted are being transacted at or close to um, price levels that we saw say a month or two ago. Um, in other markets, I think it could be slightly different, but the Sydney market seems to be holding up okay. Um, and I say in and around that, say, sub $1 million mark or up to $1.5. Um, I have heard some interesting stories, say, of the, that more premium market where, um, you know, say, three and a half million bucks upwards. So there's been some some interesting um, interesting results that, um, that have come through. But, um, yeah, in and around that, say, sub $1.5 million mark, um, I'm still seeing, you know, some stability in pricing. Whether that continues, I don't know. And when once we see the full fallout of, of what unemployment looks like, then you know, that might slightly change. Um, and I guess the other the other um, interesting thought that I have is, you know, once we do go back to normal, um, you know, the lockdown rules are, 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 um, sort of come back a bit. Um, we might see, um, you know, a, a large quantity of, of sellers putting their properties on the market. Um, so there might be you know, slight you know, oversupply issue if we don't see the the, uh, the buyers um, come back to the table as well. So that that might be interesting, and then that may put some downward pressure on price if we have an oversupply and um, and buyers are still not not confident that um, that um, that the fallout is has really bottomed out. But um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next couple of months. But um, mm. I guess if you look at the medium term outlook, look, I'm still very confident that the property market will will hold up well. Um, and um, it will it will rebound and it will rebound strongly. I don't think it'll be a, a complete V-shaped recovery, but I think we'll start to see. Um, you know, once confidence is restored, um, then 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 I'm confident that um, that you know that buyers will start to come back to the market and realise the potential of of um, of the um, of of opportunities out there. And and um, and I, I personally like to see just slow, sustained growth. I don't want to see. You know this hockey stick type of growth. Um, it, it's it just it obviously, um, you know, uh, nice slow and sustained sustained growth is is what would be um, um, my outlook for for the future. Who's buying right now? Is it investors or is it mostly owner occupiers? Who, who are you seeing that's that's doing the transactions? So for my um, just looking at my own clients here, the clients that we are still actively buying for are predominantly expats. Um, so I've got um, a group of clients that I'm working with at the moment, you know, Aussies based in, in London, in, in, in Singapore, um, that want to buy in in um, in, in Sydney, um, which is quite, I found it quite interesting. And it's, it's you know, these guys are, 
um, you know, you know, would say high, high net worth individuals that that understand risk, etc. But they're happy to whether they've they've exited a little bit from the share market. Um, I've got a couple of clients yeah. that have done that. They've they've extracted money from the share market and other um, you know more volatile assets, and they're wanting to put that into less volatile assets and obviously that goes into property so um i mean i'm seeing that that um that stack up as well um and self-funded retirees um again being perhaps those ones that have been um you know, heavily involved in the share market they're extract they're, they're liquidating their portfolios and, and moving it to a more stable environment and and property tends to be the winner in um in those situations so um that's that's what i'm seeing home buyers look yeah they're, they're still transacting um, but what you are seeing and what I'm seeing is um, your more, you know, your first time investors have definitely you know, put, um, um, put, put the reins on and, 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 and are sitting on the sidelines. But more, your more sophisticated um, high net worth individuals are still, still happy to, to, to play. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's potentially a, a good buying opportunity, but there's a bit of a herd mentality where people are like, okay, it's started to go up, I need to get in and potentially missing the bottom. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about that contrarian investing, but not a lot of people do it. Um, but you're saying there's, there's some bargains out there. Do you, do you think it's a, it's a good time to buy and, and what are the risks if we're doing that? Um, look, there, there. Look, I wouldn't say bargains. There are there are opportunities that you can get um, a decent price, well below um, you know recent comparables, um, and we've we've seen that uh, firsthand. Uh, an interesting um, sort of um, trait I've seen is um, you're probably familiar with the the capital gains tax exemption rules for expats is changing at 30 June this year, and uh, I've seen quite a number of properties. Where you know, your, your Aussie expat based in say, you know, call it London, has the has their home still in Sydney, and they want to uh, you know sell it prior to, to thirty June, so they they don't um, you know cop um, um, these or fall foul of these new new rules. There have been some opportunities. I picked up one one of those deals in um, in, in the west of Sydney, only um, you know late March, and that that opportunity once you, you sort of um, you can sort of get grip to, to understand why that vendor is, is selling. You can obviously put yourself in a, um, a favourable position when negotiating. And um, but but as a as a as a sort of a broad statement, uh, bargains. It's it's really it really depends on why the vendor is selling. Um, and then you can sort of work that to your um, to your benefit. And um, and yeah, I'm starting to see um, got another property Mossman that I'm looking at that um, you know I can see I can clearly see that the vendor only bought the property. You know, mid last year, and they're selling now. So there's obviously a reason uh, for that. So once I get to the bottom of why, then it can really help you shape your offer, and um, you know whether we place an offer or not. But uh, yeah, it's all about just understanding what the the vendor's motivation is. But um, you know, there's other properties that are going to be on the market that the vendor doesn't need to sell, so they'll just sit there. And if um, if, um, if a buyer can't come to the table, then um, yeah, you you mightn't get a bargain in that sort of certain situation. And you mentioned a lot of those people are actually withdrawing from the market. So it sort of begs the question, who, who is selling right now? And I, I'm guessing that that's, that's people that are maybe compelled to or they need to or they have a, a really strong desire to, to get out of the asset. It certainly doesn't seem like a time where you think, I really got to get my property on the market because I'm going to get top dollar. 
I'm wondering if there will be sort of a balance of of less properties on the market and obviously people are a little bit risk adverse thinking, I don't know if now's the time to buy. So that might actually mean that the supply and demand still has some sort of balance so we don't see we don't see real negative price growth. That's yeah. probably not a technical finance for <laughs> negative price growth, but we're not going to see prices drop. Yeah, no, you, you're spot on, Mike, and that's that's what we're you – know, some of the data that's coming out. I think there's, you know, there's a big um, – every weekend there's big hoo-ha around what the what the auction clearance rate is, and, and that, that's that's dropping every week, right? And um, I think it's an important stat to, to, to follow, but if you look at um, you know, the detail of, of what's transacting, um, yeah, stock levels are definitely – you know, lower than than what they were say a month or two ago. Obviously, people are selling now for a reason, and I and I I, I don't think people that that just want to test the market or um, you know if they wouldn't be selling now. So people that are selling now are, is obviously they're obviously doing that for a reason. Whether they're they could be upgrading, they could be downgrading, they could be could be distressed. Um, there's a real reason for, for for them selling at the moment. They're not just selling or listing their properties just to test the market and mm. trying to achieve maximum dollar because it's not going to happen in this environment. But I think your buyers, obviously, you know, most buyers are definitely you know, sitting on the sideline, but more your, your sophisticated buyers or buyers being supported by a buyer's agent, you know, they're still happy to, to, um, to, 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 to transact, but it's just got to be the right deal. And I think it's, it's obviously now a buyer's market and that, that, that flipped around very quickly. So it gives you know, my clients the opportunity to now you know, assess a couple of different opportunities um, and then, you know, put multiple offers on properties and, and, and you know, we're now starting to see, um, you know, these offers being accepted and then we can pick and choose which one we think is the best. And that's that, that's something that we, we didn't have or didn't have the opportunity to do only a month ago and um, it's it's definitely changed very quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of marketplace I'd want to be working as a as a BA in rather than going to auction, you know, weekend after weekend and missing out by 200K. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it has to be in a strong negotiating position. Yeah, look, I'm, yeah, I'm always very interested. Sorry, um, uh, did I cut you off there? Ben? No, 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 all good. Uh, I'm always interested in asking the question about sort of your process with onboarding clients. So when people come to you, is there a discussion about, what they're wanting to achieve in property? Do, are they coming to you saying, I want to buy in Launceston or, or insert any suburb there? What's the sort of first step in the conversation when people are saying, Ben, I heard you're a buyer's agent that's uh, that's pretty good. I want to get involved. Yeah, no, interesting uh, question. So I spent a lot of time uh, speaking to, to prospects and, and understanding whether I'm, a, I'm the right fit for them and they're the right fit for me. Um, it's really important that that uh, I work with clients that say on the investor side of things that they're you know the one that they're they're happy to take you know, advice they're coachable they're they've um, look everyone's got their own ideas as to what they'd like you know in a property and that's fine I can work with that but they need to have the right mindset as well and that's that's really important clients that tend to come to me and say I want to invest in a particular suburb or or city I find that quite challenging because I I, I take a process, um, I go through a process when I recommend certain locations to clients and when someone comes to me with that um, you know, sort of suburb or location already defined in their mind, it really, it's really hard for me to, to, to really give them the value that, that I can bring to the table. So 
uh, I guess, yeah, onboarding clients, it's really understanding, you know, are we a fit to work with each other? And that's, that's really important. What are you thinking is the opportunities for property investors in the next couple of years? So uh, ignoring the, you know, you might be able to go out and get a bargain on a $4 million place in, in, in Cremorne Point at the moment. Over the next couple of years, when we sort of consider that there is, there is going to be a li- little bit of a return to normal, one would hope, where, where do you see the opportunities for property investors in, in the next couple of years? I think the um, the commercial space is going to to um, to present some 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 opportunities. I think even in the short term, but you know the next couple of years as well. I think there's been a lot of um, you know a lot of a lot of bit of hype around the the commercial space for um, for investors, and there's been a lot of advisors that are, are pushing their clients into into the commercial space, and and for for good reason. Um, um, but I think with the with the fallout of COVID nineteen and and what we've seen with um, with commercial tenancies, um, mm. they're, they're definitely, there's definitely going to be, and we're already starting to see it, um, you know, opportunities to acquire those assets at, um, at distressed prices. And, um, you know, there's only been a couple that have come through my desk this week that, you know, that look, it's really unfortunate, right, where, you know, small businesses have to, um, you know, um, obviously cop the brunt of this. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they need to, 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 to liquidate um, you know their their commercial premises, and I think yeah, in the next couple of years, it's going to be really interesting to see what um, what opportunities present themselves in the commercial space. Yeah, interesting, and I guess um, there's going to be a lot of demand for for medical centre style <laughs> investments because we yeah. figured out that they're kind of pandemic proof. Yeah, look, at hundred percent. But um, but it, it's interesting as well, where I think people have always thought, and I've always thought that you know, the, the childcare business and the childcare, um, you know, freehold that's a that's a recession proof asset, right? But look, look what we've yes. seen through now, where you know some of those businesses, those childcare centres are are on the brink of collapse. I think now with the government support, that that um, they should be should be okay. But you know, who would have thought that um, that a childcare centre, um, the landlord would be you know suffering in terms of being able to um, get their their tenant, being the childcare business, to pay the rent. That's it's quite absurd. But obviously, we're not we're not in normal times, right? This is a obviously a health disaster that's that's causing an economic disaster. But um, but I think in the long run, um, obviously, an asset like a childcare centre will always will always um, be popular and um, and uh, prove to be um, a good financial asset. But um, um, but yeah, um, interesting. I think you're right. What what was popular pre-COVID nineteen is likely to be popular post-COVID nineteen. Of course, the market was was doing pretty well before this happened in in Sydney, for example. It was it was certainly turning around and 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 got back to into positive territory after the after the fall. So, do you think that's a, a good predictor? Is is what was doing well and what was in demand before is is likely going to 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 be robust and have the same characteristics on the other side. Look, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really um, my thought process is yeah, what was what was um, I guess uh, appealing pre COVID nineteen, it will I guess um, become appealing again. It just depends on how long this fallout, this economic fallout, uh, will remain. Obviously, through you know, with unemployment, it's just really important for us to 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 kickstart this economy as quickly as we possibly can. Obviously. Once it's safe to do so, we, we 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 need to, 
I guess, get out there and, and, and support our small businesses and um, and just, you know, try to resume life as, as we all, you know, knew it um, only a couple of months ago. But um, I think, you know, once... Uh, the big thing is confidence too. Once people, um, you know, are confident in, in their employment, so they know that they've got a stable job, um, then obviously that confidence will will move into the into the financial markets, whether it be the share market and and obviously property. And um, but yeah, I think the big piece is is confidence. Once that returns, then then I think we'll um, we'll we'll uh, we'll resume what we'll what we uh, I guess experienced pre COVID nineteen. Yeah, and sooner rather than later would be great. But yeah. It seems like we're trending in the in the right direction as at the time of uh, of recording. Now, uh, if people are jazzed up about uh, getting into property, have got some questions for you, and perhaps like to jump on board with you, Ben, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, the easiest way is probably via the website where it's got my numbers and emails. It's uh, bfpproperty.com. Um, yeah, you can contact me through there, and I'm happy to. Happy to chat to anyone. Speaking of that, we're going to put you on the spot and say if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors in general, what would that be? Yeah, so I guess the, given what we're going through at the moment, it's just important to know that, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll get through this. Um, it's important to, to be patient, you know, remain positive, um, and um, you know, most importantly, use this as an opportunity to, you know, reassess your your goals, both you know financial and and, and personal, and um, you know just stay safe and healthy, and you know and um, and and the big point that 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 I've I've always harped on about is 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 cash buffers, and I think people that that have access to you know to a decent um, you know um, pile of cash, um, they will weather this storm, but. Um, I think it's going to be uh, more prevalent in the future. But, um, but yes, it's about you know trying to remain as positive as possible. Yeah, I think that cash buffer one is a is a massive one, and hopefully not too many people were caught out of that. And and the legacy of this is hopefully investors understand the importance of that and and cover themselves a little bit more in the future. But. Great advice, Ben. It's been a real pleasure in having you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, and uh, hope to chat to you again soon. Yeah, cheers, Mike. Thanks for having me. Cheers.